You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Ah, what a nice day to spend a quiet day in the home. So relaxing. I've had so much to do and it's been so quiet lately, but who am I to complain? This is great. Ah, it's so nice. You know, I feel like something's missing. Hmm. Nah. Just gonna sit back, enjoy a few movies, and the peace and quiet of my own home. Totally uninterrupted. I'm back! Oh, shit. I'm back. It's Richard. Hello, Richard. Hi, Marco. How wonderful of you to drop by. <laughs> I missed you all. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry, I've been away for a few months. Uh, I've been um, adventuring. You know, I mean, you know, although I have improved my scrimshaw skills. Yes. I won't say how. You or look why. well and tanned. You know, uh, I'm surprised on the top of the mountain you'd get burned so much. Well, you know, and I've got to destabilize a few economies. You know, it's been busy. It's been busy times. Yes. I've been looking forward to not seeing your name in the papers. <laughs> They've managed to keep it well hidden. But I know, if well, you read between the lines, you know who was really involved. Okay, all I'll say is no papers that uh, print in uh, the uh, the Latin alphabet. Um. Anyway, welcome to Digital Noise. Thank you so much for tuning in to the oneofus.net network's uh, family of, of podcasts. Uh, as you know, we are the home, the home release review show, and we absolutely love doing this show for you guys. I really have missed... Doing oh, this, I've missed you, Marco. As well as I have missed it, you, and it, and Chris is—is is he here? No, fuck that guy. No, no. I'm so glad you're back. <laughs> Don't leave me alone with him again. <laughs> tell me where the Chris touched you. Just edit that out later. Tell, tell me where the bad Chris touched you. <laughs> no, but that, good Chris. <laughs> thank you so much for for listening to this show. We do really appreciate it. Uh, feel free to uh, to just listen to any of the other shows on the network. All our film reviews, we've got all, uh, a whole bunch of columns as well that you can, that you can read online. You don't even have to download the podcast. Uh, obviously, we've got the Highly Suspect Reviews. We've got mm-hmm. uh, Theog. Uh, we also have uh, Thumbtacks and Screwjobs, which is my wrestling podcast. Uh, which very soon, me and Gene are going to be sitting down and talking about Wrestle Kingdom 11. Oh my God, one of the greatest wrestling events of all time. That's not today. Today, we are concentrating on films. Oh, yes. We've got a bunch of good ones. Now, remember, uh, if, you, uh, if you're looking at this on the site, scroll down mm-hmm. and you'll see titles. You'll see pictures of all the films we talk about today. Uh, if you click on those pictures, they will take you to Amazon and you can buy them directly. Here's the even better thing. If you buy from them, that actually gives us a little bit of a kickback back from Amazon. Thank you very much indeed. Which helps keep the site going. Here's even better. Anything you buy on that trip, we get a portion of the profits. Okay. So if you go and you go, well, you know, I, you don't even have to buy the no. film that we that we click on. As long as you on that, just go use it there. as a link to get to Amazon. And then you know, yeah. so you're like, well, I don't really want to buy, you know, any of the films you're talking about. But I do need to buy a fridge, and this has happened. We have had people buy fridges on the trip, and we're suddenly like, 
where'd this money come from? That's rather nice. And this, it really does help pay for the and site. we don't judge. No, if we don't buy judge. industrial vats of KY jelly, we're not going to question it. We're no just grateful that you purchased it through the site. And don't forget, you can also become a subscriber to the site, uh, which gives you access to all kinds of uh, different material and exclusive content, including uh, exclusive commentary tracks on films. Mm-hmm. Um, they, the, it starts at bargain basement levels of two, of down to about two, two or three bucks a month. The more you, the more you give, the more, the better we, we do, the more content we can provide. And again, thank you so much. But you know what? Housekeeping out of the way, it is time for, and I have missed this. One, two, three. The reviews. And we are going to start off with a documentary. A good um, one. Yeah, a, a surprisingly, surprisingly good. is the key word. Uh, this is Sad Vacation, The Last Days of Sid and Nancy, um, which is, this is uh, directed by uh, Danny Garcia, uh, who directed uh, The Rise and Fall of the Clash, which is, mm-hmm. I think is, uh, apart from Clash on Broadway, which doesn't, which is such a different beast, mm-hmm. I think is the best Clash documentary. I think it's phenomenal. Uh, or maybe like... Um, uh, I need to dodge, which is like what happened just after they all broke up, and um, what's his face decided he wanted to go to Cuba and find a Dodge Viper. Very strange documentary, but this is great. This is basically um, what happened in the last few days of Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen uh, when they were living in the Chelsea Hotel. Now, there's been a lot of documentaries covering this kind of material. Oh, this is well-worn material. Uh, yeah, but what's great about this is that the, do- the documentarian went. Why don't we just find everybody else who was living in the Chelsea Hotel and who hasn't OD'd yet and was there at the time? And it's these a surprisingly are small number of people. But yeah, he found they, them. Yeah, and talked to them. Found a lot. You know, found a lot of people who. You know, it was one of my problems with um, Kurt and Courtney uh, was that they found people who. Yeah, probably knew them, but were hangers-on. Right. A lot of what you have here is people who knew them either at a point in their career that's less, point in their lives that's less well known, or they were people around them a lot but aren't famous. So, like one of the roadies, who's great and really fascinating. These kind of people who knew them, but it's not going to Malcolm McLaren where you're more interested in hearing about Malcolm. Than right. You're else. not going to see Sid Vicious or Steve Jones or any of the members of the Pistols on this. They. Probably could it be bought. Well, you're definitely not going to see Sid Vicious. Well, well, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> Sid Vicious. Of course not. Uh, I was going to say John Lydon. But yeah, the, the thing about this, and this is why I said it was surprisingly good, because I was like, I've seen documentaries about this before. This is really well-worn material. Uh, the one thing, okay, there's a lot of stories about what might have happened that night. The sort of a police report is in a, well, in a, you know, totally stoned out of his mind, Sid stabs his lover Nancy to death. But of course, there are people who say maybe it didn't work out that way. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the timeline that went through this? Because I think this is the first time they've actually gone through the police records this is a and tracked it this is like, great from minute to minute. Like, yeah. where was he at five o'clock? Where was, when did she actually die? Yeah, this is, I mean, that, one of the interesting things that they, they say, that, that work all the way through here is it gets to the grand jury and, and you have this case where they go like, well, okay, you've got enough evidence to move forward with a prosecution, but you never actually have the trial. And you have all these varying theories of like, it was somebody else yeah, or a dealer. It or was, you know, or, you know, it was Sid in a, a fit of rage or it was a, an abortive murder-suicide pact. Um, or you know what they what they kind of increasingly lean. They do have the theory that they lean to more, 
Um, which is not a... Con- What's fascinating is they present all these things and say, look, at the end of the day, statistically speaking, it was probably Sid, but was it murder? And that's right. the difference, and that's the subtlety. This isn't trying to get this guy off the hook. No, not This at is all. about saying, this and, is a guy who was, you know... And were there other people in the room at any given yeah. time who may or may not have been involved in the murder, who might have just been in the room looking, oh, everybody's passed out, I'm going to score some drugs, or yeah. score some cash they've got lying around. There are a lot of stories, and a lot of people have come forward over the years. All of them have a different variation on what they think happened, whether they think Sid did it or not. The one thing that I've always found amazing about these stories, the one detail that is always consistent, is just how eminently murderable Nancy Spungen was. Oh my god! Everybody's like, oh, I don't think Sid killed her, but fuck, I would have killed her. We all wanted to kill her at some point. The, this is... It's almost comical. Even her defenders, even the ones who her, say, oh, she was okay. Her friends would have murdered her. They're like, oh, she was horrible. She was a terrible, obnoxious person. And there's a, a long... And that's, a, I think, one thing. It's, you know, because you do have this kind of sub-conspiracy brand of saying, well, you know, she was just trying to get her hooks into Sid, and Sid was going yeah. to be who... It was a real ticket. But, you know, you have all these people go, we did our best to keep her away from everybody because she really thought that she was going to be with somebody great. She thought she was going to be like this combination of uh, a Svengali and a groupie. And she she was basically this 19-year-old kid with no clue how the world works. Right. They're a pair of fuck-ups. Oh, they're With no adults around to keep them in place. And, you know, it is a tragedy. And you do look at it and go like, you know, the, it, Sid, what Sid says about the nature of punk celebrity at that time, which it was not about the music, it purely was about the attitude. And, mm-hmm. you know, you, and it, it's... Because musically, he was awful. Oh, he was terrible. I mean, it's really a li- in fact, it's a little bit generous on how bad he was. Yes. There's, there's places where you're like, no, he just sucked. Yeah. But this, was real, this is a really, really fascinating documentary that doesn't try to be a punk documentary. It's right. a documentary about punk. About uh, punk and some of the actors and the hangers on involved, and also touches on the drug scene of late seventies New York. And we're gonna we're gonna touch into some of this little scene uh, later on with oh, yeah. uh, one of our other films today. But yeah, this is quite good. Not yeah. as much, not much in way of special features or anything like that. Like I said, it's a story you've heard There's a thousand outtakes, times. Yeah, it's but it's outtakes. really well constructed. Yeah, and worth well, your time. Well worth it. Well worth it. And that again, that is sad vacation. Uh, the uh, the last days of Sid and Nancy, which is out from MVD, who I I full props to MVD. They did they they keep a really really good collection going. They were if you like kind of off the wall alt culture stuff mm-hmm. uh, and more obscure horror. Uh, and also the record they collate and curate a lot of really good stuff. They MVD actually put out the last few Fall albums in the States. Is that right? Yeah, they're, they're, they're so really... they're an all-purpose label now. They were really wacky That's label. Cool. Well, they were, they were one of the... I think they started off as like a music video label in the 80s and just Where, kept going. Okay, I see what And MVD so they kind of expanded out. But they're, yeah, M- I, I word recommendation, do go to the MVD site and have a look through because they've got some really, really great stuff on there and titles like this that usually, uh, usually well worth your look. Um... And one that I'm not sure. This is one that I think is is it's it's a divisive title mm-hmm. because you either think it's terrible or you think it's flawed but fascinating. It's the only two takes I've had on it. <laughs> uh, this is um, the latest from Paul Schrader, mm-hmm. who Schrader's role in the history of cinema is is well, it's assured. He, it, he's he's a master. 
but, but he, he hasn't done anything good in a while. But he's a, yeah, he's a guy who's basically been shoved into a corner, and a lot of that is because he was he worked on top tier projects. I and mean, this is the guy that wrote Taxi Driver. He wrote uh, 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 Raging Bull. Directed Cat People, which is one of the great great eighties schlock horrors. One of the great art house films of the eighties, Mishima. He, oh my god! This, I mean, he's a, he's a great director, but Comfort of Strangers. I mean, he got a lot of great stuff to this guy's credit. If you're, but he's the classic example of an upper second tier director mm-hmm. that that you know was talked about in the same sentences as you know Coppola and Scorsese, but. He was talked about. He never reached their levels. Well, I mean, American Gigolo, you know, and Cat People, he starts to branch out into the mainstream and gets a little bit more notoriety, but then sort of shuns himself into the art house. And he's one of those sort of 70s filmmakers who, you're right, was part of that wave. But they never really quite translated well into the new Hollywood. And, yeah, he's too artsy to be commercial. And I think he's probably a little... Okay, I don't want to say he's, he's, because that sounds like ageist kind of talk, but this is kind of his way of reestablishing his oh, yeah, this RC is, cred. This is dog eat dog. This is yeah. uh, he. I mean, a he pulled off something really great that he got Nicolas Cage and Willem Dafoe back together, uh, which I'm. You well, know, they hadn't worked together since Wild at Heart, I believe. Nope. Then they have done one thing together since then, but I, I, I think it was like they were in something they weren't necessarily working together. Right. Um, but uh, this is uh, a an adaptation of um, Eddie uh, Bunker novel. Yeah, the Eddie Bunker novel. Very loose, very loose. There's I, I would imagine. He, so. There's a lot he kept. Well, he kept a lot, but he threw a lot out. Uh, Bunker is famous because Bunker was actually an ex-con, and right. like you know, he Bunker was a was a bad lad who went. You know what? I really am a little bit sick and tired of getting people trying to kill me. I'm going to become a novelist. Um, and this was time with Dustin Hoffman, and we shows up in Reservoir Dogs. So true. he's definitely not an obscure guy, but. It's amazing it took this long for one of his novels to get adapted. Yeah. No, he... Um, I mean, he's had some Animal before. Factory, because Animal Factory was adapted. That was that yeah. sort of his as well. Yeah, but I think the, I think Doggy Dog came out in the 90s, maybe? It was one of his later books. Yeah. And so it sat on the shelf, and according to Schrader, it's something that just finally got kicked his way. It's not something you would immediately think Schrader would adapt, but he jumped into it with yeah. a young crew... And a sort of very, daring, let's do whatever we very, want attitude. Very young crew. It's really an old dog trying to learn some new tricks. And I think he feels, this is the first Schrader film I've seen in a while where he feels kind of unleashed. Yeah. And that's a good and a bad thing. Yeah. Well, uh, and the, and the basic, it doesn't always work. The basic story is very, it, it's a, it's it's a simple, a basic like, story. You know, three, three man um, crew. Uh, all out of jail. All want to do the non- one last big score. Yeah, but they're they're kind of they're, they're not comedy idiots, but they're not bright. These are guys who've been doing this for so long they almost expect to get caught. Oh, yeah, absolutely, and they keep making stupid mistakes that they exacerbate, mm-hmm. and they make. Uh, and there's, the nice piece of casting is that originally. Uh, he had Defoe and Cage in opposing roles, right? And this, the, you know, that Defoe was supposed to be kind of the calm, like guy on the edge, and Cage was the one who was just like completely loose. And he went, "Well, I need you to be the other way around because that's going to work better." And you know. I think, it, I think it does pay off because Defoe, I don't think has been this because he's really become a much more controlled actor. He's become much more of a a nuance actor and this is closer to I mean this is this is closer to Bobby Peru yeah you know this is something that Cage could have done 
But I think because we know that Defoe can kind of play that variation, he can run that gamut, somehow finding him in that sweet center is kind of cool. Whereas with Cage, it would have just seemed expected, I think. Yeah. Now, Cage does pull out a few trademark Cageisms, and then there's some weird kind of sub... I was going to say subtext. It's not a subtext. It's right there on the front. Uh, there's some undercurring thing regarding Humphrey Bogart that he's using the channel through his performance that doesn't really work in I, I, I have to say, uh, uh, if you want to find out more about that, I actually talked to Paul Schrader about this uh, and about the whole um, uh, uh, Bogart thing and where that came from. A uh, little bit of a plug for my day job. Uh, go to austinchronicle.com and look up my interview with Paul Schrader. He talks very explicitly about where the idea for the Bogart stuff oh, came from. We won't go into that. that today because no, yeah, we have a big chunk of room. We have a huge chunk. But yeah, uh, suffice it to say, I'm a little bit tired of this genre. Not that this is done badly. It's done very well. But we've seen so many of these stories about you know the group of cons you're going to pull off one last job. Of course, one guy in the group is a loose cannon and he screws up everything for everybody. And then there is some kind of redemptive arc thrown in. It feels very rote. What makes this different is that Paul Schrader has thrown every stylistic trick in the book oh, yeah. that he can do. And but I feel the only it's the only time I feel like he's really let himself loose in recent years. But it also feels like it's trying to pump up some material that's pretty dated and tired. Yeah, I mean, a, this is a this is a studio project, a small studio project that came his way, and he was like, he went, if I make this as small as possible and call in every favor that I can and use a really young team who aren't going to cost much, I can exchange everything else I could have bought with, with, that, with the money that I could have got for something slightly bigger. Mm-hmm. For creative freedom yeah. and final cut. And he got final cut on this, which and he I did think, not get. You know recently. what? I would rather pull Schrader with final cut and throwing in, you know, the Bogart references. And, you know, the one thing he did say when I talked to him was, the, was that, you know, previously he's been a stylistic director. That a, a film has had a style. Yeah. And he went, you know, this is my time to go, you know what? It doesn't have to. As long as I can bring it together mm-hmm. in something like a, like a consistent whole... That's fine. So he'd do things like throw in... He, and this is the great thing. He's learning lessons from younger directors. Yeah. There are, you know, he was listing off these guys in their you know, 20s and very early 30s. He was like, I love what this person's doing. I wanted to kind of... I was taking that influence. Yeah. And so there's, there's a couple of... This doesn't over, feel like a Paul Schrader film. No, there's a couple of overt um, compositional references to Mr. Robot. <laughs> like, Paul Schrader is like... It's like taking this stuff on board, and I'm like, my god, this may be flawed at many levels, but I'd rather Paul Schrader flawed mm-hmm. um, on a small budget with crazy decisions than Steven Spielberg spending hundreds oh, yeah. of millions to do something as, as utterly safe and bland as the BFG. Uh, I'd rather that. This is I not going to be everybody's taste, but I think if you do like crime dramas and you like seeing somebody pushing their own limits, I think this is definitely it. So, yeah, let's move on to something. Uh, we had a documentary, and we had something which was based on personal experiences. We kind of want a bit of a theme here. Uh, a, a, let's go into docudrama. Right? Oh, yes. Um, and the current masters of the docudrama. And I have to say, this was very close to being my pick of the week. 
Oh, uh, which is right. a rarity wow. for uh, uh, this kind of uh, studio we- film in a week like this, but uh, this, I like this a lot. It was this good. Is, this is Deepwater Horizon. This uh, is Peter Berg uh, and Mark Wahlberg doing uh, well, basically a, doing a, a, a adaptation of what happened on the Deepwater Horizon. This is a disaster movie about a real disaster, and my God, it's good. It's very. This good. is this is. It's a very 70s film in a lot of ways. It 70s does. or early 80s. I mean, this if there were more stars in it, the poster would have all those little boxes with all, like, mm. you know... You yeah. have, like, Cloris Leachman and starring, you know, uh, and, and Fred Astaire. They'd all be say, down there at the bottom. I gotta say that while the poster and, and the artwork of the box makes it look like this is Mark Wahlberg walking into the inferno and saving everybody, this is an ensemble piece. It, it, it Wahlberg really is. The, is. Wahlberg is the, is the name up front. Uh, but you have a lot of people who are who turn up and are... you got John Malkovich, Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell. Uh, Gina Rodriguez, Gina Rodriguez, Kate Hudson. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is a this is a stellar cast. When you and it's about it's this is an industrial accident movie. Right. It's not a an action movie. This is about there's a lot of lot of discussions about there's there's literally a five minute lesson about how you get false pressure readings. Right. Now, uh, yeah, which with, is but it's with John Malkovich so, on a blackboard explaining things to which you, which is so well done. It is well done, and here's the thing because. Okay, now usually when you have a story like this, any kind of comp... I mean, to this day, there are still people arguing as to what exactly happened, what made this horrific thing occur. It's very easy to dumb this down. Yeah. And they have to simplify it. Don't get me wrong, you're not going to sit through a treatise, but they do manage to make it accessible and understandable to follow the chain of events without feeling like an idiot. Yeah. And that is really well done. So this has a bit... This has brains and brawn, and that's a rare combination in this kind of genre, which could have been so, so easy to just go through the formula. What I... The only misstep... Excuse me. The only misstep I found was was in John Malkovich. I mean, it's Malkovich, so you know he's going to chew the scenery. And it's very clear that the filmmakers have decided he is the bad guy. Yeah. I think since they've determined that there were a number of people, a number of decisions that were made along the way that caused this. But this is the only thing that feels like Hollywood screenwriting 101. It's like, we need a bad guy. We need an antagonist. We need someone who we can pin this all on. And that is Malkovich, who literally oozes... And is covered with ooze at one point yeah. in this film. Uh, but apart from that, it's really solid. You get a sense of just a blue-collar community of people who are just trying to get through the job and realize that shortcuts have been taken and there are heavy consequences to be paid. And they continue to pay, not only environmentally, but psychologically, physically. And the film does touch on that. I, yeah. I'm glad that it wasn't just a heroic, thank God we got off the boat, there, this is not a this is not a, a victorious triumphant kind of film. Yeah. People survive, things go to court. Some people don't get charged. Some people do, and other people get on with their lives. But one of the things that really is great about this is that this is spectacular. This is uh, yeah, the, when everything goes to hell and everything starts exploding. What it does well is one. It's not just a thing goes pop. It's like okay, yeah. they walked us through. What will happen in the event of a failure? Yeah. And then you can you can follow it and go, oh, that's that thing happening. That's that thing happening. 
This is that. Yeah. Oh, right. I understand. That little the, bubble. I mean, there's never been... It's hard to imagine how much tension you can wring out of just a bubble. Yeah. Erupting from the ocean floor. A little bubble that will become a huge bubble. And when it when it finally all goes to hell and you know, people are dying, and you're just watching this and going, like, this is what an industrial accident did. It, it is... A horrible experience where there's nothing overly heroic. It, you know, the the closest you come to heroism is go. How many people can I grab with me to get out of the right. way of this? Because I can't stop this. And the moment they, when they realize everything is going to hell, and it is a matter of how quick you get out and who you can take with you and how much you can mitigate it. And, you, and they, there are people who respond well. There are people who, you know, there's, there's an act of actual self-sacrifice which is beautifully yes. recorded. And then there's people that who lock good. up and it's not because they're bad. It's like they suddenly realise, like, I, there's literally nothing I can do. What the hell do I do? Yeah. And it, it catches that so, so well that, you know, you really get a feeling for this, this these people who live and work together and suddenly we're in this horrible circumstance that just endangered them all. And, you know, kudos to Peter Berg and a Warner Brothers and the studio just for really putting the money behind this because one thing that they do really, really well on this movie, and you can see it on the special features, is I, I assume watching the movie, well, they must have rented an oil rig and then they just did a bunch of green screen stuff. And there's some green screen in it, sure. But they built an oil rig yeah. on land. And they're like, well, it'd be cheaper if we just built it on land and just did it all. And even people who you know work in the industry you know, walked on that set and said, damn, this looks like the real thing, even down to having, like, a functional working helicopter pad. Yeah. That could actually bear the weight of a real helicopter. This is, this is a, a, you know, it's exactly what you want. And then they set it on fire. Yeah, this is exactly (laughs) what you want a studio, a big studio to do. It really puts you in the action. If they're going to spend the money to do something this spectacular, this is, this is for, you know, a great purpose. Less great purpose. Less great. Oh, also based on a, based loosely uh, on a real experience, um, coming through the rye, uh, a, aka I'm a slightly annoying scriptwriter director ah, yes. who, like many slightly annoying scriptwriter directors, went off to try and find JD Salinger because you know I really feel that I am, you know, Hold, I can, I'm re- Holden I can identify no, with not. Holden. Yeah, Holden no. is me, you, and fifty billion other people. Yeah, Holden is also annoying as fuck. He and is. Am I the only person who read that book when I was 13 and said, I don't understand what the big deal about this book is? No, there's a lot of us. I, I, had, I had a family member, I had friends who were like, you have to read this, it'll change your life. And I read it and I thought, let's see, uh, kids are obnoxious, they curse, adults are phony, people will eventually grow old and corrupt. I already knew that at 13. I didn't need a book to tell me that. Yeah. And this is basically um, uh, James Sadwith, uh, the rock director, uh, kind of telling his own story of going and finding J.D. Salinger using this, this character called Jamie Schwartz who's getting beaten up at school and he's like, he wants to do a stage adaptation of Catcher in the Rye and decides he's got to go and ask Salinger if he can um, and goes off on a road trip and I didn't care. Yeah. I didn't care at any point. I found the characters annoying. Um, the closest thing to anything that you know, kind of I could care about was... Uh, Stefania Owen as the the, uh, the, the love interest, the who love interest him along. Yeah, she's, who's, she's what she does a good job. She who is solid. She's, she's okay. She's the part is horribly underwritten. Uh, oh, what terribly she's, written. So I'm watching this, just thinking like 
I don't care. I don't care. And you're making me do 90 minutes to sit through an annoying Chris Cooper impression of a writer who I think was kind of a surly prick. I don't uh, yeah. fall for the myth. I mean, he actually of comes off almost as nice in this. I wouldn't say nice, but not nearly as obnoxious as the uh, the real Salinger could be. Of course, people met him and said he was lovely too. But I imagine, you know, after fifty years of you know teens showing up on your doorstep, you probably just finally lose your patience after a while. Yeah. A, Do a signing tour and get over and done with. No, like, get, out, get out of your system. Every kid who ever showed up on his doorstep thinking he, they were going to get permission to adapt this, you know, it's like he never wanted anyone to adapt it. Stop it. It's not going to happen. Stop trying to make it happen. You know, this is, you know, and then finally, all right, I'm going to spoil this movie. No, I'm not going to spoil it. But suffice it to say... If you want to see 90 Minutes and the only thing you learn at the end is that you just have to be yourself, then I'm saving you 90 Minutes there. Just be yourself, kids. Do things your own way. Stop trying to be someone you're not and move on with your life. Like everyone else who was 15 had to do at one point. Yeah, this is... I I throw around the term lifetime movie very, very sparingly. Yeah. Because some people throw it around and like, oh, well, you know, it's just because you're, you're, you're talking about films that are aimed at... at Housewives uh, mm. in in Waxahachie. It's like that's not what Lifetime means. Lifetime generally historically has meant just really shabby, poorly done, and cheap. Lifetime has actually got their shit together over the past couple yeah. of years and done some really good. The um, uh, we reviewed this a while ago. The um, I, uh, oh yeah, the, the, the Manson one, yeah, which is really good. I was shocked when I found it. Totally this, minor thing. This is a Lifetime. It's bland. Movie. It's bland. It feels like Oscar bait movie it's that Hall- doesn't have the money to be an Oscar. It's bait a Hallmark channel movie. It's Hallmark. Oh, right. there we go. Terrible haircuts too. I could not stop looking at the the anachronistic haircuts in this movie. It's yeah, like, I never even, believed they were in the 1960s. When you, when you can't even buy that, just yeah. who cares? Uh, but you talked about um, being yourself. Oh, <laughs> segue. Segue there. Did you notice that? Rather neat. Yeah. Um, a rather splendid, clever little movie, which I had a lot of time for, Operation Avalanche. Uh, I've got to tell you, when I saw this in the pile, I put it towards the end because I thought... I thought I knew what this was going to be, and I already hated it before I had even popped it in. I was like, oh, God damn it! not another conspiracy theory about how Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing. It's 2016 people. Well, it was 2016 when I watched it. You know, damn it, you people, we actually did land people on the moon. Why can't you believe that? So after I got all of that rage out of my system, I thought, well, I guess I better watch it, and was pleasantly surprised by how good this was. Yeah. Uh, this is by the same guys that uh, made The Dirties, which came out a couple of years ago, which was a, a very subtly hidden found footage film. Yeah. Uh, which is another thing I marked against it, because yeah. I hate found footage as well, a genre. Well, that's the thing. Any, anything that... Any, when you've got a found footage film, the first thing has to be, why does the camera keep rolling? Mm-hmm. The second thing has to be, uh, why would the footage be found? Why is it not a completed thing? Which is why I will, you know, I've had a lot of discussions with filmmakers who've made things, and they said it's not a found footage movie; it's a POV movie. There's a difference because the difference with the no, no, the difference with the found footage movie is that the footage has to be found. So this is clearly footage. The the Sacrament, uh, which is a film I love, it's a POV movie because the documentarians make it to the end. Spoiler. So it's like they just edited their film. Sure. (laughs) So this is like this. It's a that's a faux documentary. This is a found footage film. Lady in the Lake is a POV movie, not a found footage movie. Yeah. This is uh, yeah. uh, This is uh, uh, 
uh, Matt Johnson, uh, Owen Williams, and uh, Josh Bowles from The Dirties, which I do recommend you, you hunt down. as a, a very underrated little film. Uh, it's the it, it's the 60s. A bunch of the space race. Yeah, they're a, basically a bunch of low-level CIA analysts who are... Who want to go on a mission. They want, Yeah, but these guys aren't, should not be allowed out. They should not have. Yeah. Um, so they, they kind of get caught up in the, this... Looking for a mole, but you know, a mole their within boss, NASA. Their, their bosses tell them, "No, you need to stop. This is nothing to do with you." But they manage to prove themselves as being okay at doing doing a few skills that are kind of useful. So they they are set on a challenge, which is, "Okay, we're going to be doing this. The um, we're going to be going to the moon. It may not work. Right. This may go horribly wrong. We can't admit that it went horribly wrong. We have to get people to the moon." So, this is where the whole, we're going to fake the moon landing thing comes in. Well, then the question comes up, and this is, the, this, you know, this is basically the first, the first act. They manage to make the fake footage. America manages to get the guys to the moon and get them back. Okay, what happens to these guys now? <laughs> these people <laughs> basically are sat on the making of documentary for... The most dangerous piece of footage proving that America could well have faked the landing. Didn't. They're the only people who know that they didn't. So that, but they suddenly become a liability. And this goes from being a really, really interesting kind of you know, subtle comedy in a lot of ways mm-hmm. about this bunch of doofuses faking the moon landing. And then goes into being a really interesting period it hard like a conspiracy espion. thriller, yeah. Yeah, it's a hard espionage movie. Yeah. And it really works. It really works. And where I give them a lot of credit, because, again, I told you, before even watching it, I was prepared to hate this, just based on its premise. And here is, without spoiling anything, here's how they get around that. And I think it was very smart. Uh, okay, most people who claim that the moon landing was faked are operating on the belief that, you know, I don't know, the Earth is flat and gravity doesn't exist. Somehow it couldn't be done. It's totally possible within the the world of this story that it's going to happen, but the timeline is off. That's the issue. It's not that they can't land men on the moon. It's they're not going to be able to make it within a very narrow window of time that allows them to beat the Russians. So they're going to exploit a moment when they're out of communication with the Earth to insert this footage just to save face for the country. That's smart. They're not denying the a possibility of, you know, tra- travel to the moon. The other smart thing, and I was cringing, I didn't want to see some actor pretending to be Stanley Kubrick going, put the rocks over there and let's have the guy with the flat. No. But they know that Stanley Kubrick is shooting 2001, and they go, well, if you want to film a really good outer space movie, who's the best person to go and see how they're doing it? Well, let's go visit Stanley Kubrick. But it, he's not a character. So... They managed to absolve themselves of the sins that I had already accused them of this before is, watching the movie. It's a movie and that they did it in know, smart ways. Well, thing, they, they know what people are going to hold against them. Yeah. And they go, well, we can't not have those in because of the parts of the mythology. Yeah. Um, but we need to play off them. We need to subvert them. Yeah, I, I, I didn't I know, think much about this before I walked in and came out and I'm a big fan. It sounds like you're in the same position. which uh, I'm, Absolutely. They won me over. Can't say the same thing about... Oh, Death Machines. Death Machines. Death Machines. Death Which, by machines. the way, 
an amazing cover. I would love this on an album cover. There is, it's a yeah, great poster. Yeah, uh, just to describe it to you, it's it's basically a... Uh, a it feels like a, something off the cover of Heavy Metal Magazine. Yes. Yeah, circa it's, 1980. It's a, a pyramid which opens up in the middle with big pointy stumpy teeth and there's just people flying out of it and like it and then these were they flying into it uh, no because some of them are jumping out they're like ah what did you I don't know ah splat 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 it's oh wow it looks awesome it's also in the credits and that's the only place you see this because the death machines in question are three guys who do martial arts yes no let me correct myself three guys that we are told in the open sequence and it's the only time we see them do martial arts uh, who are trained Designed? I don't know. They're, they're somehow become... under control by some mysterious Mr. Big character, whom we never see again. We, we see once. Um, they then, um, you know, they, whatever it is that happened. His to plan them? is to murder all of the oh, yeah, but, oh, no, assassins hang on, hang on. in no, town. Yeah, hang on, you're missing something. That like whatever it is that he's done to them, which may be mind control, somehow makes them bulletproof. Except for when they're not. Uh, well, even then, but like they just like even then it just glances. Yeah. Like I, I, none of this makes any sense. Although at it, one point, someone goes, "Well, it's time to finish them off," and he walks off with a gun. I'm like, "We've already established that you can't shoot these guys with bullets. What are you going to do to them?" <laughs> so the, the mysterious Mister Big, who literally appears in silhouette once and is never seen again. Nope. Um, never referenced again. Never. never it was never. actually added. I did watch the some of the special features on this. Why and would that you do was that? Because it's more interesting than the movie itself. It's actually a really good commentary track. And he does talk about, like, the poster, which, and the opening sequence, the distributors were like, we need something jazzy to, to sell this. And we want to have this Mr. Big in case maybe we can do a sequel. But keep him shadowy, because if we do have a sequel, we can get an actor in there and reveal his face later. So that's why it feels tacked on, because it is literally tacked, tacked on, on and never integrated into the rest of the material. That would do it. All you need to know is that there's... An Asian guy, a white guy, and a black guy who are the death machines who are killing all of the mob hitmen in town because somebody spent a lot of money developing this team of invincible warriors just so that they could control the hitman market in this Which one town. Which apparently is... is... Much more valuable than... Yeah. What I love about, about, it, about this film, it's... in a way, is that there's an appreciation that this is stupid. And there's also an appreciation... The, the the three martial artists they hired as the assassins were very good. Well, the, so they're not the way terribly they, good. No. The way they get around this is that... <laughs> and it, it's actually this kind of this genius piece of composition that they do. Uh, is that you'll have whoever their target is, and they'll be like doing something like going for dinner, or you know, they're about to assassinate somebody, so they're setting their rifle up, blah, 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 blah. And the... In the background, in this locked-off shot, you'll be like, is that a car? Huh. Oh, it's those dudes. And they'll get out of the car a distance away, and one of them will, like, go into the trunk and, like, pull something out, and the other one goes in the trunk and pulls something out, and it's a rocket-propelled grenade that they fire at the guy there. And then they get back into the car, and it's just like... It takes three people to operate a, a bazooka and blow up one guy. Also, three bulletproof super ninjas. <laughs> Literally... This could have been done by one doofus uh, with with a small car, yeah, or or a you know a, a, a truck. Why is this just the weirdest thing? Uh, the they they for no readily apparent reason decide to kill a karate dojo. Oh no! One of those guys, the guy who ran the dojo, is operating in a legal drug. Well, as opposed to a legal uh, drugs ring. Either way, he is yeah, a mob hit. 
his mob hit, but it's like not established why to do this. He end up having, they end up having to kill everybody. Yeah, they just yeah. like they, they only apart, had to kill one guy, but they did it while from, everyone was there. Apart from uh, the annoying, uh, the the guy supposed to be the protagonist, yes, who the lone loses, survivor who loses his hand and just becomes really whingy and doesn't really go on a, 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 a revenge plot. Nothing about this makes sense. No, we're, make, we're actually making it sound more coherent and fun than it is. It's probably It's true. so bad, it kind of loops around uh, into, into even worse <laughs> and has a certain degree of, of self-hating joy about itself. Um, not least because the... Uh, Mr. Big, who's in... The, Mr. Insert name here... Um, He's actually given the running of the of the uh, the, uh, the deadly machines to a dragon lady. To a dragon I mean, lady. Literally, who she's a, a dragon lady. is is one of the worst racial stereotypes you, you can have. Absolutely. B could scarcely speak English. Uh, could scarcely act. I don't think it, her her lines had nothing to do with it. It was really just. She, I mean, she why was is terrible. She, there? she was terrible, and I couldn't tell what she was saying. Um, well, I, I watched God, it with subtitles, so I was God okay. bless the people at Vinegar Syndrome for. I'm you know, not sure who wanted to see this. But they the put 2K it restoration of it. Well, this does have a weird cult because it's it's so bad that it's almost fascinating. There's actually a really cool idea here. It's just executed so poorly. I mean, the idea of like these three guys, you know, in the 70s, you know, so you're exploiting that whole black exploitation genre, kung fu, throwing it all together in a mix, but not and none of it really congealing together. Uh, the one thing, and you point, you mentioned it. All of this stuff about like these long establishing shots and then shots of people driving and getting in of the car and then getting out of the car. Paul Carisi, uh, the director of this, does acknowledge Direct. that, well, you know, he since did a lot of other things. And he said, this is like my second feature. I learned a lot. And I, yes, I made some mistakes. Like and his, uh, his features after this weren't that much better. I, I'm sure they're Samurai bad. Samurai Cop is not great. I'm sure these are terrible. But the man has a career, and, you know, this, for some inexplicable reason, some people like this. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the 4K restoration is beautiful. Yeah. And his commentary is genuinely entertaining and informative. But, like I said, you know... A little shame-faced. A little but... shame-faced, but not enough. He's, he, he's not prostrating himself. He's like, I'm proud of this movie. Yeah, I could have done it a little better, but, you know, it was what it was. Amazingly, not the worst film we got this week. Not even <laughs> close. Uh, well, I haven't even seen that one. That's the one I haven't seen. Yeah, I saved you the agony of this. Oh, oh, my my dear beloveds. Jackie Chan presents Amnesia, a.k.a. Who Am I 2015? Now, I don't know. Like, I'm taking a reasonable guess that the listenership to this, this podcast uh, has seen Jackie Chan's Who Am I, which is kind of towards the tail end of classic Jackie Chan. You know, he, it was at that point where he could period, still... He was doing some in Vancouver. Yeah, I mean, it was like 92, I think. Yeah. And it, we could who, still execute some of those movies. Is, it's pretty good fun. Yeah. Um, it's I haven't seen it in 20 pretty years. Pretty racially clumsy, because big chunks of it are set in Africa, and Jackie Chan in... Uh, uh, in the Kalahari, oh, in, wow. the, okay. the humor's a little broad in places, shall we say? Um, mm-hmm. But <laughs> but you know, it's kind of fun. It's you know, it's it's. I, I'd say it's the last of the of that run that's really worth watching of his kind of post. Nobody you know, watches a Jackie you know, Chan that, movie for the plot. Well, the, I mean, the early ones were kind of, you know back when he was like 
almost being treated as a serious martial arts guy. And it was like, he was a serious martial arts guy that could do comedy stuff. Who Am I is the last, really, of the run of a, you know, him as a comedy martial artist before he goes and does his, his brief run in Hollywood, before he goes back and starts becoming a much more serious producer and kind of like going, I need to leave a bit more of a legacy. And some of his production... Some he of his needs work to leave more body parts as well. Yeah. <laughs> At this age, mean, he needs and some of his work as a somewhere. producer has been really great. Sure. This is not... Uh, this is this is pretty abysmal. Well, uh, when I see anybody's name presents, I just, I just assume that person actually had nothing to do with it. Yeah. They were just paid to put their name on well, it. Well, let's put it this way. This is... It's such an ignorable film for an alleged uh, sequel slash remake that literally none of the photos on the cover are from the people... Well, they're all of the cast of this film, but they're from different films. They're not actually... And this is a legitimate release. This is not a bootleg. They this couldn't is, even afford, is, like, a you know, a cover... A photo session Or even people? to Photoshop from this oh, film. Wow. They photoshopped from other films that they were in. Which is just... That's just embarrassing. Basic plot line. Um, a bicycle courier uh, gets... Is supposed to deliver, deliver something. Uh, gets bopped on the head... And develops a very specific form of amnesia, which is, this is real, which I did not know this. This one, this this is the one bit that's real. It's an inability to remember um, faces. Okay, I have heard of that. So that's a really great. I suffer idea. from that a little bit. It's a really I great. Don't even remember who you are? I do. Neither do I. Are you but, Chris? Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> hand me your money. Um, but yeah, he. It's a really great idea that they almost do something good with, yeah. and then completely fail to. And he's supposed to be running around with this this bag with this vital envelope in and it's super important for this crime boss that he get it so he sends two of his least competent underlings I'm like i don't get am i supposed to think this is funny or thrilling or just cheap and then it it, it has one of the worst unnecessary character deaths i can remember that just makes it feel really cheap I felt really betrayed by the third act, which considering I was barely emotionally invested in this film to begin with, because it's not exciting. There's a couple of decent chase sequences, but you get to the end and you're like, I don't care. So they just kill someone and wring some sympathy from the viewer? Oh, it's it's really irksomely done. And I'm like, this is... uh, you know, I I see now why they didn't run with the original title of Who Am I 2015. Um... One, that would actually ruin the reputation of... Well, not ruin the reputation of the original, but would damage the reputation of the original. You do not want this coattailing off it. Mm-hmm. Two, you can con people by having Jackie Chan's name on This This is pretty shameful. I was very embarrassed. and I, I look at all the uh, the great films from Asia that don't get released, and then I see this, and I'm like, this is just... Uh, this is designed to sit on a shelf in a, a Walmart in Tallahassee, and somebody goes... Jackie Chan, I'll give it a shot. And you've written them off 10 bucks. I really felt very disappointed in this. <laughs> uh, speaking of disappointing. Well, let's make, yeah, we've actually got a good slab of horror this week. Uh, we've got a, we got a whole bunch, uh, starting off with some uh, re-releases. Wow, one that... Does, there are some 80s kitsch horrors. This is 90s kitsch. Oh, my God. This Well, no, this, this is the thing. There's some 80s kitsch horrors, though, kitschy enough that they really survive as kind of beloved and then there's the 90s kitsch horrors where you could either start being like someone like Stuart Gordon where you're like you know I've really got a you know a chance to take 
the kitsch audience and grow with them and evolve and like the Yuz- yeah, Brian Yuzner and people like that who really start to push things a little bit more and you end up something like society and those kind of directors and then the ones who just go just do more kitsch and that's how you end up with Jack Frost not to be confused with Michael Keaton as an adorable snowman uh, this is the basically the plot um, of what's well, the plot that they ripped off to do Ginger Dead Man um, which Pretty is much, which yeah. is uh, you know not not a, a, a great uh, <laughs> yeah, so you basically have a, a killer called Jack Frost who's being driven through the town of Snowmanton on the way to his execution yes uh, town Snowmanton, Snowmanton the snowman capital of the Midwest um, conveniently and, where the home of the sheriff who arrested him yes so and uh, he the the truck the the, the uh, paddy wagon carrying him crashes and he ends up being covered in a mysterious chemical goo that bonds him at a molecular level with snow and yes that means he can manifest himself in different versions of snow he's basically like Mr Sandman or Clay or something like that except horrible and stupid yeah uh, this movie knows I'll give it credit uh, there are a lot of people who probably were kids in the 90s who grew up watching this piece of junk and they've loved it. I'm of the opinion that just because your movie has sat on a VHS shelf for 20 years, that does not qualify it for cult classic. But here we are, where after 20 years, you can re-release anything. And, you know, it is simply nothing but a series of bad puns, some poorly executed cadets, some cheap gore, some horrible special effects, and more and more bad puns. Shannon Elizabeth uh, getting fucked yes. to death by, by a snowman it, in the shower. D- yes, this is the movie where if you have ever said to yourself, you know what I want out of cinema? I want to see a really bad snowman suit rape a woman to death in a shower and then have it play played for laughs. If you like that, you might enjoy this. Chances are you are the person who enjoys this. That's why somebody put this out for you to Again, get your it, grubby hands Vinegar on. Syndrome. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's one of those releases you go, I know, that, and this is not a, a cheap release. I mean, this is no, a... No, they did a quality. This is a, a, a really nice 2K restoration. Yes. It looks lovely. This, they, you know, got, got a work, great work on sound. Good, good Lenticular cover. Which it, is also what made this movie in the 90s. It had a lenticular cover on the VHS box art where you see the nice snowman and then you kind of move the case and he turns into a mean, scary-looking snowman. Neither of which actually look like Jack Frost in the film. No, not yeah. at all. I mean, this is a... This is one of these cheap pieces of schlock that I, I just have to wonder, you know, are we scraping the bottom of the barrel on what there is left to re-release? Yes. Oh, yeah. we have... We've well, gone past that. Yeah. This we've is... scraped past the barrel, through the floor, through the subfloor. We're hitting the center of the earth at this point. I mean, I, I love Vinegar Syndrome's commitment to getting this stuff out. Uh, I just, some of the films they're putting out there, I'm like, I don't really see this. This is a movie that a bunch of people in college were sitting around, drunk off their ass, laughing themselves silly while watching it. And I can understand. Yeah, but they also thought Bud Light was good at that point. Exactly. You have to evolve at some point. So, bottom line, if you grew up watching this movie and you have a little soft spot in your heart for it, I'm happy for you. I can't share your enthusiasm for this piece of dreck known as Jack Frost. Whereas now we're going to go for uh, and we three in a row from oh, yeah. uh, our good friends over at uh, Arrow. Yes, who have a you know like Vinegar Syndrome are doing fantastic work 
uh, getting good restorations of, of uh, classic horror and not so classic horror. Um, weirdly, out of this lot, I'm going to start with this. The, it still looks worst even after a restoration, but I've got to say, out of, out of all of them, the best. Yes. Um, Abel Ferrara is the driller killer. Absolutely. Infamous for being banned in the UK, uh, being put on the video nasties list. Easy to forget how damn good this film is. It really is. And let's let's be clear. This is not good in the sense that it's a great horror movie. I think that Abel Ferrara and his filmmaking buddies said, you know what? Texas Chainsaw Massacre made a shitload of money. We can do something like that, and we can do it for 50 bucks on the streets of New York. What they ended up with is not so much a horror film, but a really, really cool sort of slice of life of the downtown art scene in the late 70s. This is where you have punk, you have downtown art. This is the Andy Warhol set. It's the era of disco and punk rock kind of just bumping in together, and you sense that there's this whole little subculture that exists apart from the mainstream. And it's a period of history I'm fascinated with. Ferrara goes into that world, and he plays an artist who is trying to make, you know, his great work that's going to bring him a lot of money, but he is also going insane. And, you know, he, and let's, let's clarify. Yeah. The reason he's going insane is because, uh, you know, a few years ago I got to interview Abel Ferrara when they did the uh -huh. re-release Miss 45, and I said, yo, do you... Yeah, that kind of era in New York has been lionized. It is, and, and it's not. It's not. You know, did, did you? You know, do you miss that? And he said, "You know what? I miss the bodegas. Everything else, terrible, exactly, hateful. It was smelly. It was filled with rats. It was right. filled with junkies. There were bad bands everywhere. Absolutely. You know, the amount of good was massively outweighed by the amount of bad. But I do miss the bodegas. Yeah, and that's the thing. This is this is a guy who is you know a little bit of talent, clearly not going very far. Yeah, living with his two girlfriends. Right. Living, all it, leeching off of him. Yeah. And he's got a horrible punk band who's moved next door and he can't concentrate because they're making noise all hours of the night. Yeah. And, it, you know, this is super roughly shot. But this is, you know, why this was banned is not because it's particularly gruesome. No. I mean, there are there's a couple of gore effects, but not really that It much. takes over an hour before you even get to yeah. it. This is... Uh, this is a mental breakdown movie. Yeah. This is much closer to something like Repulsion. Mm -hmm. Because this is a guy who is unhinged at the beginning and just gets crazier and crazier and crazier. And, and he's not... Uh, and there, there's some really good information on this disc regarding interviews and commentaries with Ferrara himself. And one of the commentators points out, which is, I think, absolutely a spot-on observation, so often in these kind of movies... The killer is motivated by some kind of psychosexual problems. This guy is suffering almost purely financial problems. He is one check away, one big gig away from living on the street. And, you know, tons of documentary footage in this film of, like, real homeless people. You know, his girlfriends are leeching on him. The landlord's bugging him for rent. He's going crazy. The television is telling him he needs to buy all this stuff. And it's a really interesting viewpoint. And like, you're right. This period of time gets lionized, but what's easy to forget is how desperate these people were yeah. living just like day to day, hoping, you know, at one point he opens the fridge and he has a cheeseburger from McDonald's and an already half drunk beer in there. And that is his lunch. That's all he has in the fridge. And finally, he's, his release is to go kill people. And... It does actually, you know, this was a popular misconception. And he kills the people who, oh, go ahead. It does actually explain 
how he can do this without having a a, a, a power cord attached. Oh yeah, to no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, people like that's the big complaint about this is like how does no, he do that? It's, it's like it actually does say that. And then I think the thing is nobody nobody realizes. You like, see the ad for it on yeah. TV. Able you for see the shop for it. I mean, that's the thing. This is. Abel Ferreira, who has gone on to have one of the most stunning film careers yeah. imaginable and be one of the most creative people in cinema, you know, he understood how to give low life depth. Yeah. Um, you know, Warhol used these kind of characters and made them into kind of super cool pastiches and didn't really understand them. And Ferreira then underst- them when he know- didn't need them anymore. Ferreira understands these guys. This yeah. is, this is a, you know, it's one of those films that because it was so controversial at the time, it's like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. People realize what it is later. It didn't really get appreciated at the time, and this is a great re-release. Yeah. Great interview with Ferrara yeah. uh, with, um, on here, which is well worth watching. Yeah. This is a stellar, the, stellar review. A little bit of warning, though. As this is true of the commentary, too, which Ferrara's on, and it's moderated by a, a Ferrara scholar. Ferrara is a fascinating guy, very bright, very talented, Tends to speak in ellipses and in non sequiturs. Tends to go all over the place. But if you can follow along and just bear with it, you're well, going to get a really good insight into where he's coming from. Well worth watching. Yeah. Um, something a little closer to kind of the um, Jack Frost end of the world, but a <laughs> lot better. Much better. Much better. Uh, another Arrow release... Chud again. It's a it's scumminess in New York. And but, I love late seventies, early eighties scummy New York. What can but I this say? Is, you know, Chud. It, you know, there are horror films that they give these. They give a, a nice restoration to, and you go, ah, yeah. You can see how bad the monster suit was. It probably didn't benefit from this. Oh my god, this film looks beautiful. It looks the, really the good. effects work looks fantastic. Well, they this still was, look like cheap rubber monsters. But well, they, yeah, but like, but the, they're better. The seven head. There's a, there's a severed head moment that is a that for, particularly for this being a low budget horror movie like it's a really fucking good severed head the, yeah but the 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 whole Chud basically was one of, it was like a, a third tier horror at the time oh yeah uh, it's got some issues but the basic storyline is um, people disappearing in New York and nobody's quite sure what's happening um, and they, it turns out that these monsters in the sewer over time you realise they're not just monsters. That something else has been going on. This is a a very heavy political allegory. Yeah. Um, about homeless people as disposable human beings, mm-hmm. and what really makes this, apart from the fact like it's a good rubber movie monster, a rubber monster movie. I like I I I have a lot of time for that. Um, of these beasts going around and tearing people apart and crashing through walls, and it really works at that level. What really makes this this fucker great mm-hmm. is. Daniel Stern. Daniel Stern. Oh my John God. Savage. The cast. <coughs> the ca- Every new actor in New York was somehow involved in this movie. You know, John Goodman's in there. John yeah. Polito's in there. Oh, uh, yeah. Frankie Faison. You know, watching this commentary is great, by the way, because Savage and the director and Stern are having a blast. And they're like, oh, hey, look, didn't she go on to do Modern Family? Oh, man, I remember that guy. Yeah. Still be- John Hurd. They did theater together. John Hurd, who was one of those guys who was Did I say John Savage? I meant John, John Who was one of these guys who was in everything. He's one of these people yeah. you've seen when you go. But yes, the real big selling point for me is Daniel Stern, who plays the Reverend, who's the guy that runs the soup kitchen that all the homeless people go to and lives, you know, goes down to the sewers and... Where, you know, this was actually before 
there was, I can't remember the name of it, the documentary about the people who lived in the New York mean, but suicide. I know the name of it. Oh, and it, you know, the, it actually says yeah. there were people living down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does that really, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's a schlocky horror movie, but it's got this kind of political weight it's to it that actually really well. works. And Stern carries it so well. Absolutely. He is such an underrated actor. Very much so. Like, it's a real but, tragedy, because he basically has given up acting now. He's has done, he? Yeah, he's, I thought he was. Huh. No, he does. I thought maybe odd, he was just doing theater work now. He but. does the odd bits and pieces, but he's. I think he's. I think he's often doing metal working now. Huh? Some people do. They're like, okay. you know. What, hey, he's he, got that Home Alone money. He can relax. Acting be hard. Yeah, particularly film acting. Film acting sucks. It's a horrible life. But you know, anybody over the age of thirty would want to do it. Like one, one thing, why, up, up at six in the morning and in bed at midnight. Fuck that. There was one thing, and you're right about the social commentary, but I do have to say this because it, it does bug me a little bit. Yes, you have a rubber monster, a series of them. Uh, and, and you listening to the commentary, by the way, there's two cuts on this film. Uh, one of them is the theatrical cut, which few people have actually seen. The other cut is the longer cut and the better cut called the integral cut. It's not a director's cut. The director's cut no longer exists. The integral cut is the one that everybody grew up on watching it on home video or on television. So if you think that's what you're getting, uh, you are. Uh, you're not getting anything new, but you're getting it in a very polished form. Yeah. The thing that bugs me about this is you can tell where the producers interfere, and the director acknowledges that. Like this shower scene that has some uh. gore in it. That actually makes no sense and serves no purpose. And yeah, it's clearly, we just needed some nudity. clearly a, not a, a, a body double. Uh, yeah, body. It's it's more kind of a body uh, three quarters. Yeah. She does not look like the, uh, the no, actress not at whatsoever. all. And, and the gore that's involved in it makes no sense. It literally doesn't tie into the plot. But I felt that the social commentary is actually undercut because originally it was supposed to be underground people, homeless people, and you can see that. Here, somewhere along the way, the producers said, you know what, we could do this kind of pseudo-zombie movie with these crazed homeless people running about, but we want a rubber monster. Yeah. And all of these rubber monsters are obviously taken from the same mold, so you may see three, but they all look identical, and you lose the fact that they're people. Yeah. To me, you do see one guy who finally turns, and it's the most compelling moment as far as the monsters are concerned. Once it just becomes a rubber monster who's, whose heads elongate for no apparent reason... It's just so you can chop them off easier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But those are the moments where you can feel the producers going, "No, we need these moments." Yeah. So this is this is it's flawed but good. Yeah, and this restoration I think brings out so much. Yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong; it looks gritty because I remember watching it at the time and, uh, and on VHS, and I'm like, "Ah, it's better than it's I can, ever looked." There's people, there's heads in a dark environment, and then in this, when they're down in the sewers and they're clambering over garbage mounds, it's like this looks great. It's yeah. really, really good. Yeah, make a good double bill with what was the one about the British sewer movie? Uh, the one where Mind the Doors. Uh, oh, I always forget the name of it. Either way, I'll think of it later. I'll remember. I'll remember. I'll remember uh, later. And yeah, Moment and the on. third, the third one from uh, from Arrow. Uh, another, you know, fairly mm. beloved. Yeah, I think uh, you know, overlooked a little bit. Overlooked because it's got it's got some really nice components. Creep Show Two. Yeah. Um, which kind of suffered because it was you know the original Creep Show is great. Mm-hmm. Um. George Romero's only number one movie. Is that right? What? Yeah, he never had another number one movie. Yeah, that makes sense. Apart from that. Uh, and it took them a long time to get a sequel up and rolling. It was like five years later. Yeah. The the bloom has, has clearly gone off the rose. Yeah. They cut the budget. This is three segments rather than five. 
Uh, one of the segments has since turned up. Somebody found the script and did a short of it, is that right? which yeah. is online. Because King provided the stories, and, and Robert yeah. wrote the script, but he didn't direct this. No, and one of the uh, actually the, one of the other segments actually ended up in Cat's Eye. Oh, okay. So, like, they you know, it's solid material. Yeah. Um, this is not as good as the original Creepshow. No. The original Creepshow is a, is a is an anthology classic. This is. It is fun. Um, it's the three segments. The first one is the uh, is, is the uh, uh, dime store wooden Indian yeah. comes to life and wreaks revenge, which mm-hmm. is you know it, it's a little sad, yeah, um, but works really well. Uh, the one that surprised me the most on how well it works actually the middle segment where a bunch of kids go to a, uh, a pond, yes, and are threatened by what is clearly. A tarpaulin being dragged through the water. Yes. What's weird is that it. I mean, it sounds like that shouldn't work at any level, and there's a lot wrong with that segment. Not least it that at one point, nice yeah, at one point, you know, except they, for the rape scene. That's yeah, kind that, of gross. There's this weird rapey moment that you're like, I don't know why you thought that was anything to do. This with is this. what I should do right now at this moment. Yeah, does not make a lick of sense. But as a people stuck in the middle of a a, uh, a lake. Being threatened by an amorphous blob, yeah. even though clearly at points you go, that's a tarpaulin being dragged under water. Weirdly effective. Yeah. Great use of a single location. Yeah. Although my favorite segment is the last one, because for some reason that part always burned in my brains as a child. Just that line of, thanks for the ride, lady. It's stuck in my oh, head yeah. for years. Yeah. Very, yeah. very simple story of woman um, cheating on her husband, runs some guy over. She's convinced she's killed him. Probably has. Doesn't stop him coming yeah. to get it, coming to get his revenge. Very simple. Yeah. Uh, gets pretty damn gory as well. Yeah. Right? Because she keeps running him over, even though he's dead. And by the time you get to the final sequence, it's like he is a mess. Yeah, it's actually, as he would be. It's, you know, it's pretty effective. And there's but, also the animated wraparound sequence, which does as well. not work in at not all. Nearly as good. Super cheap. Looks but you know, this is you know. If you're gonna buy, um, a, if you're gonna buy creep show films, I think you buy the original creep show. Sure. Then you buy just desserts, the making of creep show documentary, yes. which we've reviewed um, in the recent past, which is really great. Absolutely. Uh, which actually was included in the on the Blu-ray of the UK release, but had but due to rights issues, yeah. has been issued separately over here. That, that's well the worth ultimate investing. edition if you can get them together. And well worth investing in that. Um, and uh, then creep show two. Yeah. And then creep show three, but only because. I don't think I've ever seen Creepshow 3. Most everybody involved with Creepshow 3 tries to pretend it didn't happen. But, you know, there's a couple of there's a couple of people I know who I like who get residual checks every time a copy's sold. So, you know, if you've really reached the bottom of the barrel... Um, yeah. yeah. Well, and now leaping forward to uh, a modern Many horror film. Many years later. Modern horror film. Um, a Brazilian horror film, this time from uh, released by Artsploitation, mm-hmm. uh, who went into hiatus for a while, a couple of years ago. We recently uh, reviewed something from Yeah, well, that was the thing. They, they, they kind of went into, went into hiatus um, and have come back and have really changed their model a little bit. They were doing a lot of kind of odder, edgier um, international art stuff, and now they're pushing more of the exploitation side of the art side. Um, Chris and I reviewed their 
their edition of Kill Billies, which horrible title, but much better movie than the title would imply. Oh yeah, Kill Billies is kind of fun. I it's kind it. of fun. Yeah, which is the first Slovenian horror film. Yeah, I do believe. Rather entertaining. Uh, yeah, but uh, you know, generally exploitation. I you know I, I like their tastes, and I liked this. Uh, this is uh, the Devil Lives Here, uh, uh, aka the Fostering. Um, clearly inspired to a certain degree by Candyman. Yeah. I think they're very they're very overt about that but the basic idea is that um uh these teen you know these 20 somethings go and go to the the family house the family um Mm -hmm. farm um the uh, uh, go spend the weekend uh but it's on the anniversary the reason they're going when they are is that there's a, a family fable about the original owner of the plantation who was uh uh known as the the honey baron the honey baron who was an appalling human being. A horrible sadist slave owner, a plantation owner, and just an all-around bad dude. Yeah. And they go and think, oh, well, we're going to yeah, just have fun with this. And tradition. they mock the little traditions, yeah. This is a ter- this quickly is revealed to be a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. Of course. Um, and the, tr- the descendants of the slaves who have remained working with the family, you know, the, the whole And that's, the, that's one of the first yeah. questions is, well, you know, considering that they are former slaves, why would they have anything why to do with this? The, this? What this does really well is build a mythology. And yes, I think up it, to it, a degree. I, and I, I you know, I, it's, it is schlocky, um, but I think it works surprisingly well. For again, small budget, very small. Single location. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, it's surprisingly effective. And a very good villain. Oh, uh, The guy villain. playing the Honey Baron is obviously just acting his ass off and enjoying it. He's He is devouring scenery. Yeah. But all you really need to know is there's some kind of ritual that has to be performed every year. And these kids have shown up on the night that this ritual is supposed to occur. The kid who grew up there knows that. And he's out there to stymie that ritual thinking that he's can get away with it this year. Turns out that the descendants have come back and said, no, we're going to do this thing because Dad always did it and we have to do it or else something terrible will happen. And, of course, terrible things do happen. And by the third act, that's when they lose me because I am not sure if they're trying to prevent something from happening or to make something happen or why they have to resurrect a dead person to prevent this unborn person who is cursed, who may not be the guy who actually it did lose, this. It didn't lose you me. Know, I, and then I mean, somebody gets possessed. It's it, a very, the lore is very overly complicated. It's, it's, it is very, very complicated. You do have to pay attention a lot on that. It's I, mean, a, yeah, you know, yeah. I think I, I think that's the, the level of attention I you have I paid too to, much attention yeah. to where I started seeing how this doesn't actually work. But they overcomplicate I think that's the thing. They, they, it, it, it requires more of you to keep track of what's happening with the mythology than a, you know, good B-tier horror film like this is going to need. You either, you know, make your mythology a little smaller and watertight and explain it really, really clearly, or you go to something like Baskin, the Turkish horror which came out last year, which I absolutely love, and I'm doing, you know, please, folks, go find Baskin. It's currently on Netflix, but um, inevitably it will fall off Netflix, so go buy a copy, because you need that in your collection. Um, I, you know, I've referred to it as the Turkish Hell, uh, Turkish Hellraiser. Um, wow. it's it's phenomenal. Um, where it doesn't explain the mythology after a certain point, it obviously knows what its mythology is and it, how its cosmology works, but it doesn't explain it to you because 
you know, it's 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 cosmology is insane. And I think that's fine. This kind of falls between the two. It's like it's super complicated and it's a little bit too complicated for what it needs to be, and I don't necessarily explain it enough. I think it was a case of yeah. too many good ideas. Any yeah. one of those would have worked, and they threw it all. And mind you, this is a, this film I think had two directors and three writers. That tells feels me like that it. there no, there literally were. And they, no, no, I'm saying it feels like it. It feels like it. And they had way too many good ideas. It was the same problem I had with the Wailing when Chris, Chris and I reviewed it. Great movie up till the end, where they're like, "Wow, you have like." a really strong mythology, but you've allowed it to grow to the point where it's incoherent. Otherwise, apart from that, I do recommend it. Just be, like Richard said, you got to pay attention to it. Well, I, something that I think is in a lot of ways a lot more straightforward. Oh, very straightforward. Very close to being my pick of the week. It's very close very to Very close, but when we, do, when we talk about what, what the actual pick is, Train to Passar. Yeah, I really like this. A South Korean zombie horror and the thing is, you know, it's like with, when we're talking about found footage. People say, oh, there's nothing left to do with found footage. And then something like Operation Avalanche comes along and you go, there's always yeah. something to do with found footage. Um, Same with this. No, not another fucking zombie movie. But this is not another fucking zombie this is, movie. This is the polar opposite. Uh, because it's very simple. It's like, guy who's kind of a pretty poor dad. Yeah. You know, he's more, far more bothered in his career than he is with his daughter. So, but he agrees, he's going to take her to see her mom, and they're going to take the train to this place called Basan. By the way, I, I now want to go and go on a Korean train because they love the bullet train, and I love the Shinkansen in Japan, so this is like, oh, just beautiful. And, and it becomes a rolling class system. You've got all these members of Korean society on this train, and a zombie gets on. Well, what happens when a zombie gets onto your train, and... You can't stop it, and it's going hundreds of miles an hour, and you're all piled together in a car. And then, when you think, okay, well, that's one idea that you can play with, suddenly the film goes, yes, but we can just do build on that. And it continues to build and build and build in ways that surprise me. I and thought it was one idea, and it ended up carrying out throughout. That's the great thing. It's a, it's, it is a series of set pieces. Yes. But the reason it's a series of set pieces is because... Each car is a different problem right. to be solved. It, it feels like Snowpiercer in that way. You can feel a... Remember Snowpiercer? Oh, I love We have to go from one level to the next. I love Snowpiercer. That's the only problem with this movie in that sometimes it does get a little repetitive. It's like, we got to get through that train. we got to get from this train car to that train car. Okay, we did it. Now we have to do that three more times. Sometimes it feels like... Because this is almost two hours long. Yeah. It could have been compressed, but man, from the acting to the stunts to the performances, everything on this is quality. Doing something innovative with the zombies. Yeah. The way the zombies move is really fascinating. Yeah. I am not a fan of fast zombies. I think, you know, I'm on record as saying that. These aren't, these aren't stupid fast. No. They're just very, very aggressive. And they don't and have to go very far because you're literally in feet, for, a few feet from them. And a really clever thing that it does is that the zombies... You know, other, other films have had them act as a horde. Mm -hmm. Here they actually... It, it's almost like um, emergent intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's like when you've got a bunch of birds together, it looks like a whole flock is moving as one. It's not. They're triggering off what, what the one next They're all does. seeing the same thing. So they, you know, they'll, they'll do something. There's a great shot at the end where there's basically a mat of zombies being pulled yeah. by a train... And they don't, you know, the ones on the top don't care about the fact that ones at the bottom are being uh, are being torn yeah. apart by the rails. They're just clambering up because that's what they do. This is super effective. Absolutely. Again, has some really nice character development. Like the the zombies are always is it, it, in a lot. Of, some zombie films you'll have 
Well, the zombies are the threat, but there's bad humans who are really the bad guys. It's like, no, the zombies are always the bad guy. And then there's some real scumbags yeah. as well. And it balances that really, really smartly and cleverly. This is a super effective horror film. Absolutely. And with a lot of heart. It will, in the way of a lot of Korean movies, uh, and a lot of Asian movies generally, they can handle schmaltz a lot more yeah. than Western audiences can. It's just a cultural thing. It's just how it works. Accept it. Um, there, the end might be a little schmaltzy for some people. I, I, you know, I felt but I didn't have that yet. Oh, it earned it, but I'm, I can see there's going to be a few people that are going to go, mm. so like, just go in knowing that, um, but I think it absolutely earned it, because you go from pretty much despising this, the central character to really having a But it gives him an arc. He yeah. actually ends up different than he started. Yeah, this uh, Trench Passan... Highly recommend I think out of all this week's horrors, I think Trench Passan is, is definitely my, my top uh, pick on the, horror, on the horror side. Um it was yeah. going to be either that or Driller Killer, and Driller Killer more for its historical value as, but, as an actual yeah. horror. Because Driller Killer is borderline a horror. Is yeah. an art movie masquerading as a horror Correct. film? This is a straightforward horror film. Absolutely the top pick this week. Absolutely. But our pick of the week, and we were talking about this in advance. Yeah. We've saved the best for last because this is phenomenal. Looping background to where we began with the documentary. This is Alex Gibney's latest film. Uh, Gibney, who did Going Clear, Taxi to the Dark Side, is arguably the most significant documentarian uh, doing the rounds at the moment, yeah. just purely for the volume of work and the quality of it. Zero Days. Yeah. His documentary about the Stuxnet virus. This thing is incredible. Uh, if you don't remember what uh, Stuxnet was, a few years ago, this virus started appearing that people were concerned about. Everybody's like, well, yeah, but it's not my PC at home. It's like, mm, that's because it's not targeting your home. Right. This yeah. is targeting a piece of machinery that handles engineering control systems. And right. that was the funny thing. that, like, Normally people would go, oh, well, there's a virus on my computer. Oh, and everybody's like, yeah, five seconds of panic and then they're over. This was a moment where you could feel that the intelligence community and governments... And business all went, whoa. You see, when we think of this computer viruses, there's a tendency to think, oh my God, I'm going to get this virus and my computer won't work and someone will steal my credit card information or my identity. All of those are terrible things. This one, this is a virus that can actually blow shit up. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, no, we can actually cripple infrastructure. Specifically, it was designed, and you go through the process, give me interviews. It starts off with these two guys who work at uh, Symantec. Symantec. You know, it is their job to detect viruses, and they find one. And they go, man, we've never seen anything quite like this. This is really sophisticated. And it seems to be, we don't know what it's targeting. But it's so sophisticated that it has to be targeting something specific. So it turns out, after chains of evidence, that this is actually hitting centrifuges in an Iranian nuclear facility. And it is causing them to go offline. It's, co it's not just causing them to go offline. It's causing them to blow up. Yeah. These things rip themselves apart. Now, and this is very... And, and what this does so well is it... It takes a very arcane piece mm -hmm. of technology and, you know, really a complicated issue about how viruses work and how this particular kind of virus works and targeting infrastructure and holds your hand all the way through it and makes it clear. Mm -hmm. But even better, I sat watching this with my wife 
who has spent years in IT security. And she'd either go, yep, that's right. Or she'd go, well, they're missing something. And then two minutes later, that would appear. And she was very impressed by how well done this is. And a lot of that comes from the fact that this is Alex Gibney. Gibney has spent years doing great documentaries about, about security and military culture. He's also done documentaries about IT. He did um, the Steve Jobs documentary from a couple of years ago. Uh, he understands both those worlds, and this is a perfect fusion yeah. of that. Yeah. And Gibney's ability to call on contacts and to have people who respect what he does enough. I mean, former NSA directors, people from the CIA. There's some people who, you know, are obviously hidden, but he ranking a lot of people. The former head of Mossad. Yeah. I mean, these are not nobodies. You know, you could go, oh, it's just some crazy guy sitting in a internet cafe with a theory. It's like, no, these are guys whose job it is to actually know this stuff. And a few of them, even though they're on record, they'll get to a point where they'll go, I can't really talk about that. Yeah. And anytime, and I know we should be fair, when someone says, I can't talk about it, that doesn't mean that they know. But when they say that, you kind of feel like, now you know. Yeah. You're just not allowed to say, and these guys even say, well, I'm not allowed to talk about it, but someone really should look into it. Yeah. I am legally barred from talking about it, but you should ask those questions. And, and what's amazing is how much it also explains how the information intelligence community works and how it interacts. So, like, why there is a difference between Cyber Command and the NSA, but they're in the same building. Right. You know, all this, and who really was behind this? And I'm not going to spoil this. Like, no, no. If you don't, if you know the history of Stuxnet, you're going to watch this and go, this is great. This really lays this out incredibly well with nuance and with the actual players involved saying, you know, and explaining why that this couldn't just have been just some numbnuts who builds a really, really great virus. This is somebody doing something to a certain end. This is not the proverbial 400-pound hacker that a certain presidential uh, candidate uh, was talking about on the campaign trail. These are state actors. Now, I'm not going to tell you who. You probably already know, but that's why this is my pick of the week, that this is actually important. It's not just a good documentary. We get lots of great documentaries this is actually stuff that's happening in the world and has real ramifications is, and is still part of the discussion we're this having is, today. This is also about saying you have to understand this is the biggest change in how countries interact since the atomic bomb. Yeah. By far. And, and quite possibly with greater long-term consequences. Because yeah. the A-bomb basically went, yeah, well, you need to not do this stuff. This yeah. allows the, you know, as they point out, if you build a virus the right way... You can take down a country. Right. This is not all the pop the lights are going to be off or you're going to lose all your credit card information. This is, no, we can cripple society if we target this right. And why it's so fascinating to get so many of these guys on record, even though they can't always talk about specific things, one thing that comes out of this movie is like, look, we had the atom bomb. It was horrible. Everyone agreed it was horrible. We know who did it, we know how they did it, we know why they did it, and as a result, for the past 50, 60, 70 years, we've been having an ongoing conversation about how to manage this new weapon and how to manage this new way of engaging in warfare. We have a situation where we have 
a piece of technology that could be utilized in harmful ways, and because no one wants to talk about it, we can't have that conversation on how to move forward and manage it. That's where I think this movie is really important, because it raises those questions, and that question is brought up repeatedly by the guys themselves who should be having that conversation, but admit they are legally barred from having it. It's a really weird situation to put them in, but it's... Uh, this will give you a lot to think about and a lot to lose your sleep over. Yeah, this is this is about 21st century warfare and how scary it is. And people have, you know, I, I, what it debunks is the idea that just because the attacks are online doesn't mean it, it won't yeah. have real physical effects. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Good luck sleeping after this one. This yeah. can actually be the most horrific film of the lot. This is yeah, the, this the is most... far more terrifying. Yeah, Train to Busan. It's this is this is a great piece of cinema. Ghibli, I don't think anybody's touching Gibney for documentaries. Yeah. consistently. I think there's one-off documentaries yeah. that are that are doing something as pivotal and vital. I think Gibney's body of work at the moment uh, is just unmatched and, and doing it in a way that it's accessible this is not some wonky thing that you need a doctorate to understand this is like hey you joe blow on the street you had a question about this here you go yeah this is going to answer some of those questions but it's going to raise a lot more yeah but bar, bar none this is this is far and away our uh, pick of the week zero days by alex gibney anyway that's uh, that's it for the night that is yeah we got through the stack hey you know what? It's time for the traditional farewell. It is. It is indeed. What is that again? <gasps> it's been so long since I've seen you. We no need new re- traditions. I know. Nah, you got to stick with some fast, some some old ones. No releases. To-